So we're going through the book of Mark, as you know, and our series is called The Jesus Movement. And we got to a point in Mark where kind of like the tact of Mark changes a little bit. The story kind of uh, changes tact slightly. So before we carry on with Mark chapter 6, we thought it would be good to do a quick recap um, of where we are, where we've got to, um, what Mark is telling us as we go through it. So, so this morning is going to be a little bit of a recap as, uh, of the book of Mark and kind of where we're at uh, right now. And then from next week, we will jump back into the rest of chapter 6. Um, so, you know, we titled this the Jesus Movement, um, the series, because in one sense, it's, uh, Mark is giving us this beautiful, like, running story of the person of Jesus. Uh, he opens the book, you know, this is, um, well, let me read it so that we get it right. You know, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. This is how Mark opens the story. This is the beginning of the good news or the beginning of the gospel. This is the start of the gospel, um, which is about Jesus, who is the Messiah, the promised one, uh, the, the promised king of the people of God the Son of God. And um, so Mark just opens right up. This is a story about Jesus. And we, we started this year talking about the vision of Harbor City, and we said that the vision of Harbor City is Jesus, that Jesus is the vision of Harbor City, uh, to know him, become like him, and make him known. Uh, and so as we've gone through the book of Mark, which really is Mark telling us this gospel, this good news about the person of Jesus, who is the Messiah and the, the Son of God. This is, we've wanted to, um, even as is the vision of our church, we wanted to align ourselves with Jesus. We want to know him, uh, become like him, and make him known. So I want to give us a little bit of a recap of where we've got to up till now. Um, and, uh, you know, try and summarize one or two of the big points um, and how this kind of relates to us as a church, as Harbor City. Um, and then next week we jump straight back in to chapter 6 as Jesus sends the disciples out. You all okay? Good. Okay, so... Point one is one of the things that we learned, and we've learned this right from the start, and I'll give us three points about Jesus and then kind of three points for, for us to respond to. But the first thing that we learn about Jesus is Jesus is the Messiah, or Jesus is the King. Jesus is the King. This is one of the things Mark wants us to be left understanding about Jesus, that Jesus is the Messiah, 
or Jesus is the king. And we see right up front the announcement of the inauguration of the kingdom of God. Uh, G, you know, Jesus himself, as he, he preaches, um, talk, he proclaims, it says, Jesus went into Galilee, this is his first message, proclaiming the good news, the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near, or as the King James says, is at hand or is available. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Believe the gospel. Repent and believe the, the good news. Jesus announces the inauguration of the kingdom. The time has come. The time has come. The kingdom has become available. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And then what does he do? His next message straight after that is he goes and he says to, to Simon or, or Peter and his brother Andrew, he says, hey, the kingdom is available. The kingdom is at hand. Come, follow me. Not only is he announcing the kingdom, but he is at the same time calling people to come and follow him as the king of this kingdom. Jesus is the king. He is the Messiah, the promised Messiah. And we see this over and over again as uh, in Mark. What, what Mark is trying to tell us is, hey, look at this Jesus. He heals the multitude. He preaches. He preaches unlike anyone else you've heard. Um, as Jesus is preaching in the synagogue, what does it say? It says this man preaches with authority. He's not preaching like anyone else we've heard. He's preaching differently. He has authority, even authority uh, as it says, to cast out spirit. Jesus is the king who comes with authority, who has inaugurated the, the kingdom of God. You know, one of our challenges with thinking about Jesus as king is that kind of like any kings right now in any kind of space in, in the world, like just don't have authority anymore, you know? You know, so, so even if you think in our very local context, obviously the Zulu king has some level of, of authority, but even his authority is subject to the government. The government actually has authority over him. Or, you know, you think of, you watch all these romantic comedies and what happens, like they dream of marrying a prince or, you know, you, you see those kind of stories uh, the Princess Christmas or whatever it was, they come over at Christmas time always, you know. And, and you watch it and they, like, get married and, you know, tell this romantic story. But, like, the kings have no real authority. Uh, they have no power. You just see the glamour, the, 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 the wonder, the, the wealth, the palaces and uh, the you know, royalty is like, oh, the dream life. You live in a palace and you get treated nicely and someone's chauffeur drives you around. And we've kind of like, when we imagine kings, we imagine these soft people now who don't have much authority, but they 
get chauffeur driven around and live in palaces and you know dress nicely and uh, that's our kind of picture of of kings or you know I think of like how much I guess press coverage or, or whatever someone like um, you know Prince Harry and Meghan Markle like have, have got like in one sense like their picture is the, the rebellion against a very traditional kind of view of, of wealth and entitlement and, and stuff like that. So, so it's a view of like kings as either like weak but beautiful and lovely, comfortable living, or, or kings as like, oh, this old establishment of the colonial rule and uh, look at the heroes of Harry and Meghan who have rebelled against that. And, um, you know, so like our view of kingdoms, is, of kings, is often quite weak. So when you think of Jesus as king, and as we'll talk about Jesus as Lord, um, we live in an era or a time where kings are seen as rather weak figures that even themselves are subject to the governments of this age. As opposed to back in the day where kings had supreme authority over a time. If you've ever watched that movie 300, and uh, this is not an endorsement of it, some hectic scenes there, but if you've ever watched it and you get that picture of Xerxes, you know, standing up, Xerxes, the king of Persia, and he's massive, he's like seven foot something, built like a brick wall, um, like he's massive, he's intimidating, uh, he gets carried around by like a hundred servants that are carrying him around, he stands up, like he is such an imposing figure in, in, that, in the whole narrative of that story. He's such an imposing figure and he imposes this authority that he has, he shows off his authority, that he is a person, as he says, he's like, I'm Xerxes, you know, if you worship me, if you completely submit to me, if you completely worship me, you know, I will treat you okay, because I am a good king, like is essentially his story, but it's this idea that the kings of that time, the king of Persia, or Nebuchadnezzar, or all of those, like they carry supreme authority, and it is through their authority and their power that they bring goodness to their kingdom, and you see this for a while through history, whether it's Nebuchadnezzar for Persia, or whether it's Alexander the Great for Greece, or whether it's Julius Caesar for Rome, you, you see these, these people who are kings or Caesars who have this authority, and through their authority, they bring wealth, prosperity, peace. Uh, to their areas. When Mark and all of these guys are, are speaking into a context and they're calling Jesus as king, Jesus as king, or as we hear at the church, Jesus as Lord, they're speaking in a context in which that statement would have not just been a fairy tale, it would have been an incredibly political statement. 
Because what are they saying? They're saying Jesus is king in the midst of Caesar being king. They are proclaiming a new authority, a new king, a new ruler, someone who has very real, very legitimate power. One of the things that we learn is that Jesus is a king, that his followers, his disciples, saw him as a king. But not just that he was a king, but that he was Lord or sovereign. Uh, one of the, the, the primary statements of the early church declarations about Jesus, you see it in Acts, is this extremely heated political statement that Jesus is Lord. What are they saying when they say that, that Jesus is Lord? They're saying that Jesus is the one who ultimately has authority. At that time, in Jerusalem or uh, anywhere within the, the rule of the Roman Empire, you would have to say Caesar was Lord. Caesar was Lord. And when Caesar was saying that he was Lord and required everyone within his jurisdiction to say Caesar is Lord, uh, what were they saying? They're saying Caesar is like God. Caesar saw himself as a God, as this divine ruler over the empire of Rome. When the disciples say Jesus is Lord, it's like a subversive political statement in the midst of a human empire, an empire which exercises its authority through force and oppression. To say Jesus is Lord, it's to, it's to subvert and to say, hey, there is someone else who really is Lord. His name is Jesus. But one of the things that we see through, through the, the book of Mark is that what Mark is trying to weave through it, even up to this point, is that Jesus has very legitimate and very real authority. What does he do? As you've heard us say, he quietens the storm. He's lying in the boat He's calm, he's peaceful, so he's lying in the front of the boat on a cushion asleep, which is mind-blowing because it says that the waves were crashing over and half, half the, the boat was already filled with water. There's Jesus, calm, relaxed, at peace. His disciples wake him up uh, and, and he's like, what's your guy's problem? Why do you have no faith? And then he says, he's, he commands the storm and the storm is still. And what is Mark telling us at this moment? That Jesus has authority over creation. He is Lord, the sovereign one, over the creative order. Then he rose into an area in which there's a man who's demon-possessed with a legion of demons, with 12,000 demons, essentially. He, he's possessed, lives outside of the, the area. No one can chain him up. He's too strong, lives in a, a cave. Jesus comes and he commands 
the demons to be free. Jesus is Lord. What's Mark saying is, Jesus is not just Lord over creation. He's Lord over every sphere of the spiritual realm. Jesus then, you know, walks along uh, and he, he meets, he's going to Jairus' house and he, he meets a, a, a woman who touches his, his cloak, who has an issue with blood that it says all the doctors were not able to solve, touches Jesus' cloak and she gets healed. What is Mark telling us at this point? He's going from story to story, telling us Jesus has authority over creation. He has authority over everything in the the spiritual realm. He has authority over every sickness that no one else has been able to cure. And then ultimately, Jairus' daughter has died. Jesus has authority even over death itself. In chapter 2, it talks about Jesus being Lord over the Sabbath. Jesus being Lord over sickness. Jesus being Lord over leprosy. Jesus is Lord over all. This is what Mark's trying to tell us as he weaves through the story, Jesus is the one who ultimately has authority. And time and time again, people say, who is this man? We've never heard anyone preach with this authority. Who is this man? We've never seen anyone be able to cast out the demons like he is. Who is this man? His disciples are even afraid. Who is this man? Even the wind and the waves submit to his voice. Who is this man? Even death itself gives up its power before Christ. He is Lord over all, the sovereign one in which everything, every realm in which anyone would be able to understand, every realm from creation to the spirits, from sickness to even death to even the religious practices of the day, Jesus commands authority over it all. Mark wants to remind us that this Jesus that we're following This Jesus that the disciples are going after, he's not just a good teacher. He's not just trying to teach us a beautiful way to to live. I remember that kind of like kid's song, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, you know, look upon this little child. This kind of picture of Jesus that we have, have, see those pictures painted on the wall, Scandinavian Jesus, long flowing like blonde locks holding the lamb in his hand and like a kid on his one knee and like gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Uh, We have this picture often of of Jesus, just like this wonderful, beautiful Jesus who is just so nice and so kind and uh, so loving, all of which Jesus is. But what Mark is telling us up to this point is that Jesus is not just this nice, good teacher. He is the Lord of all. When he speaks, everything obeys. 
When he speaks, the waves stop. When he speaks, the rain ceases. When he speaks, the demons flee. When he speaks, the sickness goes. When he speaks, even death gives up its host. When he speaks, everyone listens because he is Lord of all. And in one sense, leading up to this passage, as we spoke about last week, this kind of like first section of the book of Mark, as, as we get to the end of this section, how does this section end? It ends with Jesus rebuking the complacence. Those who have become familiar, those who have become complacent and familiar and like they've forgotten that Jesus is Lord. So he goes to his hometown and they're like, isn't this Jesus the carpenter? Mary's son? Don't we know Jesus' brothers and sisters? Isn't this the Jesus that grew up amongst us? Isn't this that Jesus? And what does it say? They took offense at him. The passage is a rebuke of the complacent and the familiar. Mark's telling us Jesus is Lord. Let us not forget that. Lest we become, come into a place where we become so complacent and familiar that we forgot that this Jesus that was walking amongst us is the one who has all authority on heaven and earth. But telling us that Jesus is Lord, the one who has authority over all things, Mark is telling us that Jesus is the Son of God, God himself. But one of the most powerful things of this section is that while Mark is telling us about the authority and the lordship of Jesus in story after story, He's revealing to us a king and a lord unlike anyone seen in human history. He is the compassionate ruler, which is what Mark is trying to tell us. He is the compassionate ruler. Jesus is the one who sees the leper, who pays attention to the sick, to those who are fearful and anxious. Jesus is the one who pays attention to those who are abused by society, by the systems and ways that have been built to oppress them. Jesus is the one who notices and sees and has compassion on. Uh, you know, to go back to the movie 300, Xerxes is like not only is he portrayed as this towering figure in that movie, um, but he's portrayed as this towering figure in which everyone must just give their full attention to, like, must worship. If you put one step wrong, off with your head. Like, you are done. If you say the one wrong thing, done. 
you're, you're out. And this is how kings were seen. Julius Caesar and the Caesars of those days. I mean, if you think of what they could do in those kings, if you put one foot out of line, done. You're gone. Eliminated. As Nero, in one sense, to, to show how powerful he was as Christianity was, was gaining steam, to show how powerful he was, he captured the, the Christians and he set them alight on the road to his palace. And he said, if you're the light of the world, you can light up my road. Like Nero, to try and show off his power. He doesn't notice those who are oppressed. He takes those who are being oppressed and he abuses them even more. Like that's how kings were seen in that day. Jesus is so radical at this point, so revolutionary at this point, because he is the one who notices the outsider, who notices the abused, who notices those who no one else notices. And he has compassion. Jesus is deeply concerned with human flourishing. He's deeply concerned with human flourishing. He rebukes the Pharisees for their harsh use of the Sabbath and says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was not created. Man was not created for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was created for man, as Jesus says. Man was not created just to serve the system. What is Jesus trying? He's saying Sabbath was created for the flourishing of humanity, not for the oppression of, of humanity. He sees, he notices, and he seeks human flourishing. One of the powerful stories that brings us to it our attention is the story of the woman with the issue of blood, which we already touched on. But it says here in Mark chapter 5, it says, A woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet, instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned round in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciple answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Before we get to the end of the story, at this point, you're thinking if Jesus is like every other ruler, every other person with power, you're thinking Jesus is looking for this woman to rebuke her. Like, how dare you come and touch me? 
Like, how did you break through my entourage of bodyguards? How did you break through this people that are meant to be protecting me? This is what you're kind of expecting, that Jesus is looking for this person that has taken something from him, and now he's going to rebuke them. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. One of the reasons some commentators believe Jesus singles out the woman. Why does Jesus single out the woman? She's got her healing. Because if she got her healing without this interaction, she wouldn't have gone on from this point knowing that God had seen her. That she was seen in her suffering. Of course Jesus knew who touched her. Of course Jesus knew what had gone on. This moment was not about Jesus. It was about her. And the fact that what Mark is weaving through the story is not only is Jesus Lord, and everyone will submit, everything will submit to his lordship, but he is the God who sees, the compassionate one, the one who notices, who stops in the middle of his journey to single out a woman who has suffered greatly, lost everything at the hands of those who are meant to help her. Jesus sees, notices, shows compassion. We see the king of this kingdom. We see the Lord over all. And we see a Lord who is the merciful ruler, the compassionate one, the one who has all power but notices even a single touch that is in need. Three things for us as we've gone through to this point of Mark is what you know, Mark is telling us about Jesus, but he's also telling us about ourselves and what we call to. And three things that we, we call to. And the first is that we're called to be a community, a people, a movement that is built on allegiance to Jesus. Allegiance to Jesus. Follow me. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There is this call. Repentance is a call to change. It's a call to change your mind. It's a call to change your allegiance. When Jesus opens up his preaching with the message of repentance, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and then straight from that, hey, come follow me, 
Uh, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me, the call to, to follow him. It is a call for us to change our allegiance, to change who we submit to, change what we submit to. The word repent is the word metanoia, which means uh, someone who is walking in one direction to have the revelation that the direction that they're walking in is wrong, to acknowledge that, and then to make an adjustment and walk in the right direction. That's what that word metanoia means. So when they're talking about repentance, they're not just talking about, hey, you know, you must now repent. You must feel bad about everything that I'm going to tell you you've done wrong. And then we're like, that's repentance. It's like this feeling of sorrow or, or downness. And it comes from a preacher basically drilling you and all the things that you've done bad, and then you repent. That's not what repentance is. Repentance is this acknowledgement, hey, I'm going in the wrong direction and I make the adjustments. It's like Siri on, on or whoever that person is on your Google Maps. You know when you go down and you've gone too far and it's like turn around and it says, hey, turn around, turn around, turn around. It's like telling you, you you've missed the turn off. You've missed the, the direction in which you're now going is not the direction you should be going. So you need to now repent, adjust. Turn around. The call of Jesus is the call to, hey, you've been going, following your own way, living in allegiance to yourself or in allegiance to Caesar or in allegiance to your own desires or whatever it is. And now Jesus is calling us to repent, to adjust, to change direction, to change the way in which we're living so that our lives are now submitted to or aligned with him. A kingdom is a space in which there is a king, obviously, and there are those who are aligned to or subject to the king. A kingdom is where there are subject people who have chosen to align themselves, to pledge their allegiance. To the king. We've just had a rugby world cup, so will you forgive me for telling a rugby related story? But there's a story of, of Bucky's Buerta, who uh, was just a towering figure, uh, played rugby like 15 years ago, and uh, they were playing against England. And one of the props on the English team was a guy born in South Africa, but now he was playing for England. And uh, Bucky's Buerta, this Pretoria Afrikaans guy who hated the Queen, couldn't fathom how a guy who was born in Pretoria could pledge his allegiance to the Queen. So when they were going to scrum... <laughs> He changed the position in the scrum so he could be on the side of this guy. And uh, every time they scrummed, he would just punch the guy one in the face. 
And, and I mean, he was like, for him, it was like, how dare you, as a South African, pledge your allegiance to the Queen? Why are you playing for England? This is so stupid. But that's what a kingdom is like. A kingdom is like, where are you pledging your allegiance to? Where are you giving yourself to? Where are you submitting to the call that Mark is calling us to is to be a people that pledge our allegiance to Jesus. Who are you aligned to? Who are you submitting to? Who is the king in your life? Something's a king in your life. Maybe someone or something. There's something that you give authority to. For some, it's just our phones. This is the king. You know, like when it's sitting on the counter and it like vibrates, like you can't not but think about it. You're like, I, ha I have to go see it. It's the king. It calls for your attention and you're like, yes, phone, I will give you my attention. You know? What, what are we giving our allegiance to? The call of the gospel is that Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. And he is the one that demands our allegiance. The other thing that we see is that this gospel community that's being formed is most powerfully like a God a community of outsiders. It's a community of outsiders. Over and over again, we see Jesus welcoming the outsider, bringing in the outsider, bringing in those who have been excluded from religion or society. It is a gospel and a community for outsiders. So we see Jesus with the leper. Like, you do not, lepers were outsiders. Lepers at that time, if they were around people, would have to shout out aloud, unclean, 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 in case someone came too close to them or would touch them, and then themselves would be unclean. So could you imagine being more of an outsider in society than at every single point when you were around people, you had to shout unclean. Unclean, unclean, unclean. A proclamation that you would have to make over and over again to remind yourself and everyone else that you are a complete outsider. Jesus goes to the leper, the outsider, the unclean, and makes them clean. Jesus in the story of the lepers doesn't say to the leper, you are healed. He says, you are clean. Why? Because he's made an outsider, an insider. And the Pharisees are moaning. The insiders become the outsiders and the outsiders become the insiders. We see the same question with Jesus' own family who are irritated with him at this point. They think he's lost his mind, that story. They're like, Jesus has lost his mind, and it says, we will go and take control of him. 
I mean, can you imagine this? Jesus is Lord. He's quiet in the storms. Everything submits to him. His family's like, we're going to go take control of him. Like, you're like, okay, this is Jesus, but hey. Like, so they want to go and take control of him. They think he's lost his mind at this point. And then Jesus says probably one of the most offensive things at, at that point. He's got a whole bunch of people around him in his own home. His family are so offended at him that they're outside. And someone says, hey, Jesus, your family is looking for you. And what does he say? Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister. It's radically offensive. And we know, we know as church history tells us, that his own family come and submits to his authority. His own brother becomes the head of the church in Jerusalem becomes the person who writes the book of James in the scriptures. His own family submits to his authority. But at this point, what is he saying? He's saying anyone who thinks they're entitled to be an insider and is trying to push other people out, the Pharisees, those who have a lineage, those who are even, you know, flesh and blood of Jesus, like... What is he saying? He's always bringing the outsider in. Always bringing the outsider in. It's one of the... I know it doesn't always seem like it, but if you go throughout church history, one of the things that you see is that Christianity always advances amongst the outsiders. It's just, it's, it's like, it's most, it's this powerful invitation to those who are excluded and those who are outside, that there is a king and lord over all who is compassionate and sees you no matter what you're going through. And finally, one of the things that we see is that this is a community that is not built around the synagogue. It's not built around a location, Nazareth. It's built around a community that are prepared to follow and go with Jesus wherever he goes. Which makes me even think of that. Sometimes we come to church, and we come to church because we serve coffee, you know, like... Why do you come to church? Free coffee. Like, I needed it this Sunday morning. Nowhere else was open, plus it was free here. So, yeah. Or, or we come because Eugene's on worship and we're like, love it, love the worship. I come for that. We come for friends, or maybe you, you come because you're looking for a partner and you're like, well, there's some single people that go to church. <laughs> Seems like a good place to find uh, someone. And uh, I mean, you know, there could be a, a whole bunch of reasons. But ultimately, the call 
And what we learn about the community in the book of Mark is that those who are of Jesus are prepared to be with Jesus wherever he is. Those who follow him, follow him. That their lives are prepared not to be built around a building or a place or a comfort or you know, even a great idea or something that is going to make my life feel better in this moment. But that the followers of Jesus are followers of Jesus. Where Jesus is, we will go. What Jesus calls us to, we will do. We are a community built around this, that Jesus is Lord. Which makes even some of the petty things of church seem really insignificant. You know, you come to church and you're like, ah, you know, Tabani burnt my coffee this morning. Like, when are they going to get this right? You know, I don't know if I can come anymore. The parking was just inconvenient. Someone like double parked over a parking lane or didn't park straight and I don't like that. I mean, I'm being silly here, but there are some really silly reasons why often we get irritated with church. And we get irritated with church because our we think the community is about those things. And those things happen in the community. But ultimately, the reason why you and I are together is because there is this person called Jesus who is king and lord over all and who has brought us together because of him no matter where we had found ourselves before this. And that as a community... Our primary existence, the reason why we are together, is not for all of this. It's for him and him alone. That Christ is Lord of all. And through his compassion and mercy, he has seen us, saved us, and rescued us by his grace. And that we exist here today. And if we move on and go somewhere else and you join another church, well, you know, what, whatever it is, wherever it is we will find ourselves, we exist purely because of that, that Jesus is Lord and has called us to be in him. Can I pray? We're going to ask Eugene to do one last song. Just as we reflect on Jesus, as we take a moment just to appreciate who he is, and then we'll close the service. But as we've gone through the book of Mark, my hope for us as a church is that more and more not only will the vision of Harbor City be Jesus, but more and more the vision of our lives will be Jesus. To know him, to become like him, to follow him essentially, and to make him known. Let's stand and pray.
And then we'll close with one song. Father.